0: Hey, everybody, this is Allison Macrina from Library Freedom Project, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we have episode 220 today uh, for May 17th, 2021. Uh, before we get to part two of our interview, I've got three really fun announcements. So, uh, first of all, I just had the podcast tables flipped on me. I was interviewed on someone else's podcast. I will be a guest on Malwarebytes podcast called Lock and Code that I believe will air next Monday. I'll let you know for sure when it, when it is, and I'll put a link to the show notes, of course. It's hosted by a guy named David Reese, who has been on my podcast. I went back and looked several times. Um, maybe as many as John Graham coming, I was kind of surprised that I'd had him on so many times, but he was at the EFF. That's where I first met him. And then he moved on to malware Malwarebytes and I had him on the show when he was at Malware Bytes. and we got to talking recently and decided we would flip the script. And so now I am the guest and he interviewed me for his podcast. It was a lot of fun. We had a good talk about dark patterns was the, was the subject matter. So anyway, that that'll be coming out soon. Definitely check that out when it drops. And my second fun bit of news is I am officially going to DEF CON 29. That is the hacker conference that's annually held in Las Vegas. It was not held last year, or I think maybe I guess they did virtual last year due to COVID. I was actually planning to go last year as my first one. This has always been a bucket list thing for me. I've been wanting to go to DEF CON for many, many, many years. I tried to get, tried to get Cisco to send me and <laughs> could never quite... Quite get them to uh, pay for that trip. It was yeah a little bit a little little bit of a boondoggle. Since I really wasn't in the security group, it it was kind of hard to justify. So, um, but now I'm going. Uh, I bought my registration. Normally, they do not register ahead of time. Normally, it's cash at the door because they for privacy reasons, they don't want your information, but because of COVID and some of the precautions they are going to have to do this year, they really needed a solid head count. So um, this year they're doing registration and I just registered. Um, cannot wait. I bought some swag, got my hoodie. I, <laughs> I mean, what, what could be more official than a hacker hoodie uh, uh, from DEF CON? So uh, anyway, I'm super psyched. I'm what, Actually, I'm really hoping that I'm going to get a chance to meet some of the guests that I've had on the show. I mean, I've met very, very few of the people I've interviewed in person. It's always been remote. In fact, many times I haven't even seen them because it's been audio only, even locally. I'm not, we don't use video just to try to save bandwidth. So it doesn't eat into the audio quality. So uh, I've never met or even seen a lot of my guests. Um, so anyway, some of those people uh, would definitely be the kinds of people that would go to a DEF CON conference, so I'm hoping to maybe bump into those people out there and have a drink. That would be great. Now it's going to be limited this year. I guess it's going to be a hybrid conference, so it's going to be a little different. Uh, actually, I think that might not be a bad way to go for the first time if it's a little less crowded, maybe, and you know, a little, a little a little more contained, I I don't know, I don't know what to expect. But um, if I like it this year, I'm sure I'll go again next year and get the full on experience. Of course, next year will be DEF CON 30. So I'm sure it's going to be a huge party. So um, yeah, that that that's the plan. But I'm really looking forward to it. Can't wait. Finally, and of course, the highly collectible security enhancement device. Uh, I wish that made a really cool acronym, but it doesn't I need to come actually need to come up with a fun name for this thing. (laughs) And it will be announced in one week. Come hell or high water, it is long long since time that this thing debuts, um, and I cannot wait for it to be out there and for you guys to hear all about it and uh, the websites that's going to come with it, which anybody can use. Uh, but I'm reserving these highly collectible items uh, for patrons. Uh, if you're already a patron, by the way, uh, I will make sure that you can have access to these as well, certainly my longtime patrons. But I'm also going to use these to attract brand new patrons. And they're just, I think they're super cool. So hopefully you will too. And finally, after all of this foreshadowing, uh, you will finally know what the heck it is I'm talking about next week. One week, you'll know. Okay, quick security note. If you use Adobe Reader, be sure to update it right away. There are some vulnerabilities that are being actively exploited right now in the wild. So definitely update Adobe Reader. Uh, and if I could maybe take that one step further, just delete Ado- Adobe Reader. Uh, there are better ones out there, I think. And ones that are uh, n- not quite targeted nearly as often as Adobe Reader. It's super popular. It, unfortunately, it gets installed automatically on a lot of computers. Or when you install anything Adobe, oftentimes they'll install Adobe Reader too, And then it takes over as your you know default PDF reader which is just kind of slimy. Anyway, I, I mean, not that it's not a powerful, useful tool, but it's it, it's had so many security problems. I would recommend you do something else. So first of all, if you're on a Mac, just use Preview, the one that comes with your Mac. It's a great PDF reader. It actually has lots of PDF annotation and altering and merging and other capabilities that uh, a lot of people would go to a reader for. And if you're on a PC, if you're on a Windows box, Uh, you might look at Nitro PDF or even just um, uh, Sumatra PDF. They both have free versions. They're both quite good. Um, And finally, honestly, if really, if all you ever do is just read PDFs, just use your web browser. Uh, Firefox will read PDFs, for example. I think most of them will. So, you know, these days, if you just need to read a PDF, just look at it or print it, you really don't need to use a dedicated reader anymore. But anyway, so Back to the original, though, if you are using Adobe Reader and you insist on keeping using Adobe Reader, make sure you get that updated. All right. So uh, real quick, before we get into part two of our interview with Allison Macrina, she mentions one term I just wanted to call up. She makes a side reference to something called a, uh, I think it's called a shot spotter. And we've mentioned this a couple times on the show, but it is a surveillance technology used to try to triangulate the location. Well, first of all, detect, and then triangulate the location of potential gunshots. So, uh, police departments have used these in certain areas of cities where they believe there's a higher likelihood of gun related crimes, I guess. And, you know, you can understand that there's, there's probably a very strong racial bias, unfortunately, uh, to a lot of that technology and, but it's effectively microphones placed all over the place that are constantly recording, and so it's a surveillance device, and we talk about that a little bit in today's show, so I wanted you to be aware of what uh, ShotSpotter is and what that technology is. So with that, let's get into the second half of my fascinating interview with Alice McGrina from the Library Freedom Project. (music) Do you know, in your position, have you run across situations where there's been pressure on libraries from local authorities or I guess even intelligence agencies to install, you know, high-tech monitoring, monitoring equipment, right? This is all for our benefit, right? All for for our safety is what they'll say. You know, license plate readers, facial recognition, key loggers, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, you know, there's so many different ways today that we can be tracked as we move around the world. Has there been any cases of conflict here uh, with libraries and law enforcement trying to install these kind of things?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I I would say the most the most common are cameras. Um, yeah. And then also, you know, there's like um, a, f- a few other kind of more common um, law enforcement surveillance equipment. Like, like for example, these devices called uh, shot spotters that are mm. audio surveillance yep. devices that are supposed to detect, right. their gunshot detection, but they also right. pick up all other sorts of audio. And so, yeah, I mean, um certainly local law enforcement will request to install these devices on the building or in the parking lot especially if there is if it's a like quote unquote high crime area or um if it's an area that is afflicted with um you know like an addiction crisis or something mm-hmm. like that. Um yeah, no, I mean, that sort of thing, it's it's so common um, as just a very kind of like local community thing that happens um, that I don't even know that there has been um, any real attention or, or um, much writing about it. The one thing that I can think of that speaks to specifically the way that these kinds of relationships with libraries and law enforcement can get really impacted by the presence of surveillance equipment is there have been a couple of case studies around libraries that have installed cameras in their, on their property, not inside the library, but outside. And actually I think in these cases, it was the library deciding to install the camera themselves. So like Mm. if they had staff felt unsafe walking Mm -hmm. to their cars at night or something, but in this case study, this was a library in the Pacific Northwest they started to get a lot of requests from the police for the camera footage without a warrant, you know, just like a kind of like handshake agreement and, and pr- really an expectation mm-hmm. from the police that the library would just right. comply. Right. And it created a pretty hostile relationship between the police and the library. And this library in question actually ended up removing their cameras because mm-hmm. they didn't want to have this hostile relationship right. with the police and they didn't want to have to keep saying, no, you can't have this footage without a warrant. And so that's the only specific study that I know of, of of how this that kind of relationship can go. But I can imagine most of the time, it's probably more like the police request it and they get it because libraries, again, they they're not very well informed about their rights as a whole. And I think that they are also like, really busy they're really overloaded with doing all sorts of public service work and and frankly social work in a society where other kinds of social programs have been so systematically defunded that the library is now responsible for doing all these other things that it didn't used to do (laughs) and so sometimes i think it's just easier to like go along to get along and they don't have a whole lot of time to stop and think should i be resisting this can i do this like It's just simpler to say, okay, well, you can have this information because I guess you need it.
1: Right. Well, and as soon as you said, you know, police video surveillance, uh, I'm kind of hot on this whole thing with Amazon and Ring Doorbells and and all the things that they are contracting with police to basically deploy this massive video surveillance network across the country. And now they're, you know, putting cameras on their shipping vans as well. And, you know, it kind of got me thinking and this might seem kind of intuitive, but it's, it almost seems to me like if I really wanted to delve into something that I was worried about being tracked, my public library is probably the best place to go because <laughs> if I'm, you know, if I'm going to buy something off of Kindle, you know, Amazon now has that information, right. And, and I'm, they're selling that information left and right out the back door. And, and if, even if I probably did an ebook, I would think I would actually worry a little bit and maybe you can comment, but, uh, if, you know, if I was checking out an ebook, cause the, the publishers are getting information about that and who knows who they're selling that information to what, what's your, what's your take on that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think my what what we do in Library Freedom Project, I mean we're definitely concerned with the the state of privacy in the actual library itself. Don't get me wrong. like we want the library records to be private. We want them to have better practices. But I would say that primarily our our efforts are that we see the library as a space where we can help educate our community about the hmm. bigger privacy issues. Mm-hmm. and I, and you are absolutely right to name Amazon because Amazon is just so influential in our lives, so much of their business model has to do with data collection and surveillance and their capabilities are increasing and their relationships with, you mentioned their relationship with law enforcement, mm-hmm. uh, with their Amazon ring yep. program, that they have a whole outreach program to police departments, mm-hmm. you know, helping to push the use of their surveillance doorbells everywhere. And so yeah, I mean I I would say that Amazon is indeed companies like Amazon are indeed the bigger threat and we libraries are a place where people already go to learn about their computers or take other kind of public and civic engagement type classes yeah. and so what we do in Library Freedom Project is we try to help folks understand the kind of like broad view of this stuff. So what what is it about Amazon that we need to be concerned about. We need to be concerned about the the scale of their power, how much our data is is creating them as a behemoth, right. the ways that they collaborate with law enforcement to violate our privacy rights. And I and the other kind of area thinking about Amazon in particular and but this is true about a lot of these such companies is that they also are using a lot of these surveillance capabilities against their workers. Mm, and so oh yeah, yeah. that that is the kind of like it's not really new but i i would say that that's another sphere of the privacy fight that we need to be thinking about significantly is surveillance of labor and and i mentioned this about amazon because there's such an enormous fight right now um a labor rights fight happening where you know amazon's workers in Bessemer Alabama are voting about whether or not to form a union it would be the first union for amazon and mm-hmm. i there is a relationship between this and uh, the privacy fight, because if these workers can win their union and they can make better demands about their working conditions and they can shine a light on the surveillance aspects of it, yeah. they can they can make demands about their privacy. And also, I think that as this sort of you know worker power scales, the people at these companies that are making the surveillance equipment themselves can also start to make demands about you know, better privacy protections mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff.
1: Modern libraries today are more than just books, obviously. And um, they I guess they always have had more than just books, but one of the things in the information age that they've become a, a center for is people uh, getting access to the internet because there's not a lot. And, you know, maybe with some of the infrastructure plans we've got coming out, maybe we'll finally get broadband everywhere, but we don't have that today. And a lot of people can't afford it. And so for a lot of people, their access to the internet is, you know, is at the library. And so this brings up a pilot program you guys did a while back and it had to do with installing a Tor node at a public library. But before we talk about that pilot specifically, um, maybe give the audience a quick high-level explanation of what Tor is, what, how it works, and you know why somebody might want to use it.
0: Tor is an anonymity network. The most simple way of, of thinking about it is that when you use Tor, no one who is in a position to observe your internet behavior can see where you're coming from, or what websites you visit. The most common way that people use Tor is something called Tor Browser, which is a web browser. Mm -hmm. It works like other web browsers, like Firefox or Chrome or whatever. The difference is that it has built-in privacy protections so that you visit a website, and that website doesn't know where in the world you're coming from. It doesn't know other websites that you're visiting, and vice versa. So it's got all these kind of like privacy defaults Mm -hmm. about your web access. So why somebody might want to use that? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons, you know, people people around the world use Tor. Um, One, you know, use case that comes to mind is that um, abortion is illegal in many countries in the world. And Mm -hmm. so if I am someone who wants to look up information about reproductive health, it might be dangerous for me to Mm -hmm. use a normal Mm -hmm. web browser where um, my internet service provider can see what websites I'm visiting and they could possibly share that with law enforcement. And so if I want to look up information about abortion providers in a place where it is not legal, if I use Tor browser, then no one can see that I have looked up this information. And so you know there are implications for journalists, for you know reasons they might want to use this for different kinds of dissidents. There are many different use cases for Tor. Many different kinds of people who, for various reasons, might not want certain entities to see the websites that they visit when they go on the
1: internet. Right, and one of the things I love to bring up when we ever talk about things like this is I know a lot of people think, "Oh, well, that's not me. I don't have to." That's interesting, but you know, I'll never need that. But the what we also need to be thinking about with any of these kind of privacy respecting services, uh, is normalizing privacy. And and so, you know, so that the people who do need to use it for those things don't stand out, right? If we all did it, <laughs> then it wouldn't, you know, you might be worried that you're going to pop up on the NSA's ra- radar if you download Tor browser start using it. Well, if everybody did it, it wouldn't that wouldn't be sticking out, right?
0: Absolutely. No, her, it's there's a real kind of like herd immunity yeah. that you can have if if everybody's using these things for sure.
1: Okay, so you had a particular pilot project around Tor, and it was actually hosting a Tor node, which is a little bit beyond what we've discussed, all right. So, tell me a little bit about this—the twists and turns of this pilot project, because I know there were some really interesting kind of ways that this went as you rolled this out. And then, you know, what was the result? Did you know? Did other, other libraries install Tor nodes as well? You know, what happened?
0: Yeah, let me explain first what a what a Tor node is. Mm-hmm. So, the the way that the Tor network works is that in order to have the location privacy that Tor offers, the part where no one knows where in the world you're really coming from, is that when you log on to Tor, when you use Tor Browser, you are having your traffic like bounced around between some other computers in the world that are, they're configured as proxies so that Mm -hmm. they function a little bit. if, If people know how, VPNs work, it's kind of similar to that, where okay. the computer that is proxying your traffic with a website that you're visiting thinks that you are coming from that computer's address. Now, the difference between a VPN and Tor is that there are three computers involved in this proxying um, where in, in Tor, whereas with a VPN, it's just one. Mm-hmm. So your traffic in Tor gets bounced between these three computers, and in this way, it's very, 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 very difficult for someone to figure out that the end result uh, has come from you, the original user.
1: It's kind of like in the spy movies, right? When You always see the spy, oh, he's bouncing his IP address off all these other servers. That's really that is actually what Tor does, except it does it yeah. with three, not a dozen.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so the nodes, the Tor nodes, or they're also called relays. I just called them computers because that's really fundamentally what they are—they're computers that have been configured to do just this one thing, to forward traffic on the Tor network. And there are different privacy protections built in so that each computer doesn't know anything about, um, only, only knows what it needs to know to, to function on the network, but we don't really have time to get into those details. Yep. You can certainly look it up on the Tor website right, if yep. you're interested. So the Tor nodes themselves, they are computers that are run by volunteers around the world. And they are very important, crucial, actually, for the Tor network to function. And so, in Library Freedom Project, we got this idea that libraries would be a really good place to run these Tor nodes yeah, because yeah. libraries have usually pretty strong internet. Even in places where strong internet is, is harder to come by, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. libraries can, can tend to you know, get pretty, pretty strong and fast internet for their, for their patrons. And they already provide all these kind of public internet services. It just seemed like a really obvious place to operate these Tor nodes. And we knew that more Tor nodes were not only helpful to the Tor network, but it also gets at that other point you were making about how we can have more of a privacy culture if these things are are more ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And so if your local library is running something like a Tor node, then it doesn't seem as scary or weird. Or different. And so we worked with a library that we already had a good relationship with, uh, the Lebanon libraries in New Hampshire. And we set up this tour node and we got a little bit of publicity and it was a nice little thing. And we thought, okay, well, we're just you know going to move on and try to get some other libraries to participate in this. And then what happened was that the Department of Homeland Security found out that the library was running <laughs> this tour node. They got upset about it and they tried to, f- via the local police, tried to kind of pressure the library Uh to shut the node down and it really backfired on them pretty spectacularly because you know, we found this out. The library was definitely a little spooked by it, but we found this out and we, we rallied a lot of our, our friends in the privacy space. So the um, electronic frontier foundation got involved Mm -hmm. and the ACLU and a lot of other bigger organizations and the library Held a, a board meeting to discuss whether or not they should keep this thing on, and the board meeting was packed with community supporters, and everybody spoke, and it was really beautiful. Anyway, you know, so basically, it was it was a a, a brief interruption in the um, the tornado being online, but was a really great way of bringing some publicity to this issue, and the the library was very celebrated by its community. And it was just like, you know, it it ended up being a really good thing for us, right? Because everybody, we got what we wanted in the end and we were able to get a lot of attention on this.
1: Well, real quick, that was was that one of the things that came up when I was reading this article was that this was a referenced uh, example, a classic example of the Streisand effect. Uh, Absolutely. Which, do you want to explain what that is? <laughs>
0: Yeah, well I, I believe it's I, I the origin of it is is something about Barbara Streisand and yes. I don't remember what it is, but it's like if you try to hide something, you try to stop something, you try to like prevent something from getting attention and the fact of you trying to stop yes. it is the thing that gets it the attention. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And she so was,
1: she was trying to protect the location or or maybe just the pictures of her home. Somehow there was somehow pictures of her home or a location of her home were popping up somewhere. And so she was trying to get that squelched. And of course, that just immediately made her, the Internet. Everyone now knew where her oh home gosh. was, and what it looked like. Yeah, so.
0: Poor Barbara. <laughs> yeah. And now even worse that she's the name of it. So now <laughs> right. everybody, whenever they go up to look about the thing, yeah, then they're like, oh, it's her house. So yeah, no, that happened very much, very much. So we got all sorts of great publicity about it. And uh, yeah, it was a good time.
1: So what became of the pilot? Did it branch out to other places as well after the success?
0: Yeah, we have a number of other libraries that are running the nodes. However, one thing we learned from the project was that it was kind of like, there were tons of people who were super supportive and interested, but they were like, before we can commit to running a Tor node, we don't actually know what Tor is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need a lot of help with that. And so we, we just sort of, I think one of the things we learned from the pilot was while we definitely want libraries to be running Tor nodes and we're appreciative of the other libraries that do run them, we shifted our focus to a little bit more, I would say, 101 level, beginner mm-hmm. level. And so, you know, teaching about Tor itself getting libraries to install Tor browser on their computers, that has become more of our focus rather than this thing that is a, a pretty big ask technically that <laughs> yeah. not a lot of libraries even have the in-house expertise to keep the thing operational.
1: And so one more question I had, and it's kind of a little bit off topic, but I was just curious as long as I had you uh, and that is what had, impact has the pandemic had on libraries? Cause I know a lot around here, most of them uh, are, are closed and then at one point they got to the point where you could maybe make an appointment to have a book meet them at the door and they give you your book. But like, you know, a lot of people that was their main access to not just books, but the internet. Um, So I'm just curious, do you have any interesting stories about, you know, what, how the pandemic has affected libraries in general in the United States? And uh, did we learn anything from the pandemic? Did it it expose anything about how libraries operate today that that might change how they operate in the future?
0: We could have a whole podcast episode. (laughs) We could have a whole podcast series on this. I mean, I guess the, the briefest way to talk about it is, yeah, absolutely. The the pandemic has had an enormous effect. And I would say that it fits into, there's a few different main ways. And, and these are things that we have seen reflected across society, all the different things that the pandemic has highlighted about the the deep inequities in our society mm-hmm. and the deep dysfunction about, about our society. Uh, so one thing, one really big effect of the pandemic is that the way that library workers have been treated in this is really, really abysmal. Um, mm. I think that it fits into the the same kind of set of issues that we've seen um, with other quote-unquote essential workers where we love to be like, oh, my God, you're so important mm. to society and we're just <laughs> going to thank you, but we're not going to pay you what you're worth. Right. We're not going <laughs> to offer you we're not going to keep you safe in the pandemic mm. you know the same way that that folks in other f- kind of frontline public jobs like grocery workers yeah. are having to deal with mask enforcement and anti-maskers and that sort of thing libraries have had to deal with the same and so yeah there's a lot of a lot of labor issues that have come up and then the other side of it is recognizing just how much libraries have been bearing a lot of the the burden of a society that has, I mentioned before, systematically defunded its social programs. And so people are relying on libraries for all different needs, particularly when it comes to the internet and computers and considering how much more important the internet and computers have become in the pandemic because we're living mm-hmm. our entire lives on them. Yeah. This has been a really, you know, it's, it's a, it's a critical issue that is, basically unresolved because we can't reopen libraries safely without library workers becoming um, fully vaccinated. But library workers were not listed Mm -hmm. in the in any of the priority Mm -hmm. categories. And there was no, you know, the, the efforts were like, you know, some states did a better job, but there was no you know libraries didn't make it into the CDC guidelines so it's it's basically a huge mess and it really reflects a lot of the ways that we're we're really failing and struggling more broadly speaking so you know hopefully in whatever world we're going into is one where we can we can get our our lawmakers to invest more in in the public and in all these social programs that we desperately needed before the pandemic that we need even more right. now, particularly when it comes to technology access.
1: Right. All right. Well, as we wrap up here, I'd, I'd love to get your kind of your advice. You're obviously have you know a very unique experience when it comes to protecting one's privacy. So what advice do you have for the audience on how best to protect their privacy today?
0: Well, I think that there are two ways to look at this. There's one that is the kind of like individual level. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other that is the sort of like collective or community mm-hmm. level. So at the individual level, I think that the most important thing for anybody who wants to do better with their own privacy is I think that it's it it's very useful to look at information about what your own threat model is. And so I recommend the electronic frontier foundation has probably the most easy and basic level mm-hmm. stuff about yeah. understanding what a threat model is. And it's a sort of scary name for something that, right. um, is a, is, is, pretty straightforward. It's basically like who you are and what you need to protect based on your unique circumstances. And so right. you, the person that you are and the way that you have or don't have power in our society things like your race and gender and your class very much impact your threat model and who you have to protect information from how interested law enforcement might be into you all these other things right so learning about your threat model and then and then making some decisions based on your threat model that is the that's the best for any individual to do and like I said, Electronic Frontier Foundation has some really really good basic privacy resources. They have a um, a part of their website called Surveillance Self Defense. Yes, yes, yes. And they have a whole thing about threat modeling and some really easy places to get started. You know, but but my my you know more specific advice about that is like everybody needs good passwords. Everybody should be using a password manager, and then everybody should be using Signal, the <laughs> yeah. texting app for having uh, encrypted conversations, whether they are voice or, um, or text. Now, that said, a- as individuals, there's only so much that we can do when we're talking about these problems that are really, really need like political solutions. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. at the collective level, we need to be thinking about how we can demand changes, policy changes, changes in how our technology works and what it, what it can and can't do, changes at the level of law to make it so that that balance of power can be a little bit more even. And so thinking about what to do with the collective level, you know, can be kind of challenging too, though. It's like, where do you even start and with whom I would say, you know, um, you know, whatever it is that people are really motivated about. I mean, unfortunately surveillance is such a big problem that Mm. you kind of, it's, it's a world that's too big to know, (sighs) but I think depending on what your own threat model is or what threat models you are motivated around, There are different ways to get organized collectively. And so when it comes to the like intelligence agency level of things, I would say that, again, Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU are doing some really good work around trying to rein in the capabilities of those entities. When it comes to law enforcement, I think that all the different efforts at um, defunding and reforming the police definitely are ways to curtail or limit their their influence and um, in their, in their um, various surveillance technologies. Organizations like Media Justice are very involved in that fight. There are efforts to rein in like school surveillance uh, at different universities mm-hmm. yeah. and high schools and whatnot. So yeah, I would just, I would say, you know, figure out what it is that it, you are particularly motivated around and then find out what the organizations are that are doing the work at the kind of like political High level efforts.
1: Awesome, yeah. I, and two thoughts that you triggered as you were saying that. First of all, back to the the, the personal thing and doing the, the your threat model. Uh, that is an unfortunate term. <laughs> I think a lot of people. Might it get really that. is, yeah. But but it's really about it's a personal inventory. It's it's like you know think about it like when you're trying to get together. You know what what are my life insurance needs? Well, you know what what's my mortgage? Who do I have to support? Are my kids in college or not? Do they you know the, all the same kind of and sometimes tricky, but more practical questions you have to go through to determine, well, how much life insurance do I need? Uh, and what kind of insurance do I need? What kind of home insurance and auto insurance? All of that starts with an inventory of your situation, right? And it's so it's, it's the same kind of exercise, I think.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a really good analogy. And I, and I would just add to it that likewise, there are times in your life that your situation might change. Right. Oh, and yeah. so mm-hmm. the, the insurance analogy is good. Like, you know, if you, God forbid, like, you know, have some illness, then you're going to have to look again at right. your um, insurance documentation and make sure it covers, you know, whatever might, might be able to, you know, what, whatever might happen to you. It's the same thing with a threat model. Um, if you become more politically active, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. take on a new kind of job that makes you more of a target of certain entities, these are things that would change your threat model. Absolutely.
1: And the other thing that, that, that made me think about is, is there's no, when we're thinking about acting collectively, it doesn't necessarily have to be nationally. And a lot of people think, oh, I'm not going to march on DC, but so many things that have happened in the, just in the realm of privacy have happened at the local level at city and state level, you know, look at the laws that have popped up in California or even cities like Oakland and, and, and whatever, where they've banned facial recognition and things like that. A lot of that was all local. And so you don't necessarily have to think huge and uh, you can still act locally and yet still be collective. And, you know, look at the Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is kind of their program for, you know, sponsoring and local groups that have to do with privacy stuff. So there's uh, I just wanted to add that thought to that, too. I think that's uh, something else that people should make sure they consider. They don't have to think federally necessarily when they're talking about doing collective action.
0: I'm so glad that you brought that up. Uh, In particular, I'm glad you brought up the facial recognition bans, what you mentioned in California and Massachusetts, because these are absolutely Community driven Mm -hmm. efforts that involve, you know, the Massachusetts one, for example, a lot of it is spearheaded by my good friend Cade Crockford at the ACLU of Massachusetts, but there are all kinds of community groups involved that are giving testimony, that are writing letters to their lawmakers. The thing about collective action is that it doesn't mean that you have to be like working on it, you know, 80 hours a week or something. (laughs) There are ways that you can get involved in these efforts that you know, where you're part of this bigger whole. And so yeah, I the, the facial recognition fights are just such a perfect example of it. And they're winning.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So real quick, before we wrap up, I know that you specifically offer resources for, of course, libraries and librarians on your website. Uh, tell us a little bit about those for anybody who out there might be interested in, and uh, in, in those specific things that your organization offers.
0: Well, in Library Freedom Project, we really love propaganda. um, (laughs) And we try to kind of take that word back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, propaganda exists in all sorts of ways. And and we think that the reason why we love propaganda is we love having resources that are visual and interesting and help people understand these complex issues in a way that, you know, can be sort of fun or at least Mm -hmm. eye-catching. And so a lot of the resources that you'll find... On Library Freedom Project, I'm sorry, that was my old website, LibraryFreedom.org. are flyers and printable posters, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. things that can be made into stickers, that help explain some of these deeply complex um, but more and more ubiquitous issues in surveillance. And so, we have a lot of stuff focused on understanding facial recognition, why it's a problem, what, how does it work, where where is it in use. Um, we have some resources about. Amazon Ring, understanding Mm -hmm. the police partnership that Amazon has. So a lot of things like that that people in any context, not just libraries, can get from our website, they can print them out, and they can share them with people. And then we also have a bunch of other resources for teaching. And so for library workers who want to offer privacy classes in their library or do staff trainings or that sort of thing, we have a lot of those resources as well. And then the last thing I'll plug, we also have a wiki, which is libraryfreedom.wiki. And that's a little bit more disorganized, a lot more disorganized (laughs) than our website. But um, we have a lot of other resources on there that include things that are kind of like more ongoing efforts or works in progress. So for example, we have a really long book list of privacy Mm. titles. We have other like you know, electronic media for people who are trying to understand things like threat modeling or start teaching privacy classes or learn about different tools. And so we have a whole bunch of resources on, on the wiki as well.
1: And and what is the Library Freedom Institute?
0: Library Freedom Institute is a project that we have for, it's a, it's a kind of an, an intensive training program for library workers who want to become like the advocate in their library around privacy. And so um, it's four to six months long. We just wrapped up our fourth cohort. And it's, um, you know, it's it's really just an opportunity to, for library workers to, to learn together over a, a period of time, understand the privacy issue from all different sorts of angles, and then be part of a community where they can work on The response, whether it is super duper local about policy changes we're making in our library or things that we're teaching, or whether it's some of those bigger collective kind of advocacy efforts.
1: All right, well, last question. So as citizens and as consumers, uh, how can we best support our local libraries and organizations like yours and just intellectual freedom in general?
0: Well, I think the best way to support your library is to use it. And then when it comes time for like, you know, voting on the library's levy or other tax increase or any kind of funding, like Mm -hmm. make sure to get out there and, and support it. But I think that making sure that making sure that people understand the value of libraries really broadly, um, especially in these times in the Mm -hmm. pandemic, because we sort of, we can tend to kind of get left out of, of conversations. So anytime you are, involved in any kind of advocacy effort, you're talking to any local politicians or anything like that, to make sure to to name the value of libraries and what they mean to you.
1: Well Alison, that was just a fascinating discussion and thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that.
0: I love talking to you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I want to thank Allison so much for coming on the show. We had a really good time. We had a lot of fun off air too. Uh, Just chatting about various things, and I've got some bonus content that I'll be posting actually for patrons about her origin story, how she got into what she's doing, or she how she became, how she started the Library Freedom Project, and it's really it's really an interesting story, and it's an inspiring story really because it's something that any anybody could have done. She found something she was passionate about, and she made it happen, and she found some ways to support something she really wanted to do, and she's had a lot of positive impacts. On her environment, and honestly, yours if you use the public library. So, great work that she's been doing. And if you are associated in any way with a library, or even if you're a frequent patron of a library and you think that they could improve their privacy technologies, you should definitely mention to somebody there at the library about the Library Freedom Project. They've got a lot of great resources. And I've put links to all of those in today's show notes. Now, a couple other things. If you want to try out Tor yourself, the easiest way, as uh, Allison mentioned, is just to download the Tor browser. It's based on Firefox. It's not as up to date as Firefox. I guess Firefox has these long-term support versions of their browser. It's like one step beyond, you know, in software releases, there's like alpha releases and beta releases and release candidates. And then finally the releases that go out to the general public. And then there's this kind of one level above that that you don't hear about very often. It's these long-term support versions of their software. That's the ones that are so rock solid. The ones that have been out in the, in the wild being used by all the users for long enough that they can say, okay, this one's, this one's super solid. And this is the one we recommend for really critical applications. So Tor browser is based off of that, I believe. And it's, it's just a web browser, uh, but under the covers, it does all the Tor magic for you. And again, we kind of talked about it in the, in the, podcast today but it's it's really fascinating and it was quite clever and i I think it was actually originally funded by the u.s government it uses encryption uses publicly encryption and these tor nodes uh three of them in every case to wrap your web requests in these onion layers that's why tor tor was originally for the onion router t-o-r the onion router and because it was kind of like an onion, these layers, and so you know you would encrypt your request to the next Tor node. The text, the next Tor node would then wrap that up in an encrypted request to the next Tor node, and the final Tor node would, would wrap it one more time. And so it worked out that three is the magic number. If you do that properly, the place you want to get to on the internet and the place you're coming from on the internet, those two IP addresses are effectively hidden so that once your request makes it out onto the internet, no one can really track who you are or where you were going. So check that out. You can download Tor browser again, link on the show notes, or you can just go to torproject.org and look for it, download there. And it's going to, it's going to be slow because of all that encryption. Well, not the encryption, not the encryption so much, but because it's got a proxy through three different nodes before it actually goes out and onto the, onto the interwebs, uh, it's going to, it's going to be slower. So that's the price you pay currently anyway, for privacy. All right. That's going to wrap it up. I uh, got the big news show for you next week. I got an update for you on the Apple air tag privacy issues. There's been a lot of articles and a lot of press on this and, uh, the Apple, uh, app tracking transparency, the ATT has been out in the wild for a little while. And so there's been at least one study about the uptake on that and how many people have decided not to be tracked. And it's really stunning. Uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, We'll talk about that. Well, obviously, we need to talk about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown and the ransomware involved there and what happened behind the scenes. Uh, The Biden administration in the US just released a wonderful new set of guidelines about purchasing uh, the US government's purchasing of equipment and cybersecurity requirements that will impact everybody positively. So that and many more subjects, uh, all in the new show next week. And then after that, we've got another interview. And this one is going to be about Google's new technology for tracking that is supposedly more private than the current technology using third-party cookies. In fact, Google's saying that next year, Chrome will stop supporting third-party cookies. So it's a big shift. And well, I'm I'm not going to blow it here, but we're going to, we have a long interview about how that works and why it's not really as good as it should be but it's still fascinating and something that we need to understand so that will be the interview show following the new show lots more on the horizon as well so subscribe if you haven't already you'll never miss an episode there have been no new reviews for the book or the podcast i will read them on the air when they appear So if you haven't, I would very, very much appreciate a really nice review, either for the book on Amazon or for the podcast on Apple's iTunes. That's where most people get their books, and that's where most people get their podcasts. So that's the most effective place to leave nice reviews. But of course, you can do it anywhere you like. Uh, Those reviews really help me get noticed, and it's it's hard to get noticed, frankly. So uh, every little bit helps, and it's always good to have fresh ones, too. So uh, keep them coming. I very, very much appreciate it. Check out the blog. Check out the newsletter. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on YouTube. Follow me on LinkedIn. Just go to FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com and you'll find all the information for those things there. For those of you that are fully vaccinated, according to the CDC, you can stop wearing masks like altogether, like almost altogether. Of course, you know, nursing homes and hospitals and things will be different, but... That's huge. That is a big deal. Uh, I actually went out with my daughter to go to the grocery store. I'm like, you know what? I'm not wearing a mask. I'm, you know, I, I, and it felt weird. I felt like I was breaking the law or something. I felt weird. And as I'm walking into the store, she goes, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to just bring it with you? And I'm like, oh, okay. And I went back and got in the car. And then I realized, you know what? Businesses can still decide that they want you to wear masks. And this was one of them. So it was a good thing I did. But we are, we're getting there, guys. We are really getting there. And the more of you get your shots, the more of you can stop wearing masks in a lot of places. And we can get back to normal. So go get your shots. Help other people to get their shots. And let's put this pandemic behind us. All right, everybody. Take care. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drop down.